If a child who trusted you told you that someone had touched him or her in a bad way, would you know how to react, what to do, who to call? I'm Mary Shank. April is Child Abuse Prevention Month, and this week on Legally Speaking, we'll hear from Carrie May, director of the Champaign County Children's Advocacy Center, and Lindsay Clark, a Champaign County prosecutor. These women's careers intersect in an interesting way to protect children who have been hurt, often by someone they know and love. We'll be back after this. Hey, Jim Rosso, News Gazette Media Vice President, reminding you that we have a ton of podcasts available at newsgazette.com every day of the week, from Dave Gentry's morning show to Scott Beatty's News Hour to Brian Barnhart's Penny for Your Thoughts. Head to our website, newsgazette.com, and search for podcasts. April is Child Abuse Prevention Month, and my guests today are two women who have spent a large part of their careers helping patch up the wounds of children who have been abused in one way or the other. Carrie May has been Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy in Champaign since 2017 and has been working in the field of child protection for more than 20 years. And Lindsay Clark has been an attorney for 15 years, almost all of that time with the Champaign County State's Attorney's Office. She's now one of two criminal division chiefs, I love that lofty new title, <laughs> um, who basically are second in command under State's Attorney Julia Reed. So welcome to Legally Speaking, ladies. Thank you. Thank you for having uh, us. It saddens me that we have a month to highlight child abuse prevention, you know, in most normal homes. This is an unspoken daily occurrence. Um, but when it isn't um, normal, that's when your career paths cross at the Children's Advocacy Center. So Carrie, who is a return guest, yay, yay. Um, I'd like you to start by reminding our listeners, what is the Children's Advocacy Center? What's your purpose and why are we so lucky to have one in our community? So we are very lucky to have a Children's Advocacy Center. Um, our center covers not only Champaign County, but Ford County. And I think um, to understand what the CAC is, as we call it, for people to understand what we are, you have to understand what would happen to a child if we didn't have a CAC. Mm -hmm. The child, before we existed, had to tell their story um, of his or her life and the sexual abuse or severe physical abuse that they experienced over and over again to people like doctors, police officers, lawyers, therapists, investigators, and judges. So without the CAC, the child would have to talk about their abuse at a police station or the DCFS mm -hmm. office where they probably would think that they were in trouble. Um, the other problem that happens is that well-meaning adults in their life would ask them questions that would then hinder the case against the alleged perpetrator. Okay. That's on my list of questions Very to address why, why you don't want, and go ahead and did, maybe you can just talk about that now, uh, or Lindsay, why do you not want to have a child repeat this ad nauseum? Well, first and foremost, it's traumatic for the child to have to repeat that story. Um, the child is, has finally chosen to trust someone to talk to, and you want to get a clear, concise um, report of what has happened to them and to have them only do that once to a trained forensic interviewer who knows not to lead the child or put words in their mouth but can gently allow them to tell their story um, can be crucial for us later and when they end up having to go to court if we have 
multiple statements. Any person's going to say something differently, mm-hmm. naturally speaking. But when you put a child into a courtroom and they've had to give their story five different times, um, that's going to be frowned upon or, or maybe perhaps suggested that they're lying. Okay. Um, and if it isn't obvious from the way we were talking about, their statements are being video recorded. Correct. We have two forensic interviewers at the CAC. They are certified, and they've had numerous ongoing training in how to ask children questions. They know how to ask them in a developmentally appropriate way so that the younger the child, they know how to listen. They know how to ask the questions. They know how to make sure it's going to stand up in court if they have to testify um, to what was said during the interview. They work very closely with Lindsay and the other assistant state's attorneys Mm -hmm. to make sure that we're asking the right questions that are going to help the community as jurors understand what happened to this child and why it's important that the offender is held accountable. And Lindsay, you're often there watching from a two-way mirror, right? We don't have a two-way mirror. We have a a closed circuit uh, video system that's okay. set up there. So we sometimes get a couple days notice, maybe a week's notice, uh, sometimes no notice. It's come right now. A child's ready to speak <laughs> right now. So myself and other attorneys, when available, will go. We can meet the family. We can answer any questions that they might have about what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we do watch the interview. The interviewer might take a break and come back and speak with us and ask each one of us in that room, the whole team the disciplinary team might be in that room. We all have different questions we might need answered. So who's on the disciplinary team? Besides yourself, there's usually a, the police officer who's investigating the it allegations? It consists of the police, uh, DCFS, counselors. There's, of course, staff of the CAC that are there to provide their mm-hmm. services for the family or for the child. Uh, so it can be a few people. It can be a whole handful of people that might eventually include a doctor or a nurse. Okay. And you're saying to the interviewer, wait, we haven't heard A, B, C, D, or... Yes. Yeah, so uh, from my experience, I take the cases to trial, and I know what has worked or not worked in front of juries. And I might have some information to say, you know, usually juries might want to hear more about this. Can you ask the child more about what happened on this day or with this topic. Good. Um, before we get into the the jury aspect, I want you to back up and, and, and can we talk about, I wrote down the anatomy, no pun intended, of, of a case. Okay, so a kid has decided to reveal to somebody, I've been hurt either sexually or, you know, somebody hits me, you know. Um, that in itself is huge that the child has gotten to the point of wanting to reveal to an adult. So let's say the adult is either a a mandated reporter like a teacher, a daycare provider, or maybe it's it's usually mom or <laughs> who normally. Yes. So th- then what happens? The police get called or DCFS get called? What happens after the kid has decided, the child has decided, I'm telling this story? Well, it could be either and hopefully that adult is contacting someone quite often they they don't Uh, if they have decided to report it they could report it to their supervisor to dcfs to police ultimately we need the police to be contacted who will schedule the interview with the child and we'll get that team organized so that we can meet and start the process okay and then um just because a child does 
an interview with the CAC, there's no guarantee you're going to file charges against the alleged perpetrator, is there? That's absolutely correct. We have how many interviews each year? So in 2018, we had 268 interviews, um, which was up 60 from 2017. Um, sometimes kids come and they're too scared to tell their story. They're not ready. Oh. It's a very overwhelming process. And what we have to remember is any time a child has to talk about it, they're being re-traumatized. So to come to our center, even though it's a child-friendly center, we have toys and games and we try to make it as easy on them as possible, they have to tell a complete stranger something that's very private, very scary, and someone they love is probably getting in trouble because of something that happened to them. So sometimes they get there and they're scared and we leave the door open, they can come back at any time, but it's a very scary process. So from that, just last year in 2018, our office filed just under 40 felonies involving physical or sexual, sexual abuse of those children. And those for, for lots of reasons. It could be the child decided in that interview not to disclose. Okay. Or the child just doesn't disclose because they don't know why they're there. Or they didn't feel comfortable saying what happened to them. Sometimes they don't give enough information for our office to file formal charges. Or sometimes they do. And we take lots of things into consideration. Um, other witnesses that might be interviewed, the defendant uh, or perpetrator might be interviewed. But sometimes the family or their doctors might determine it would be more traumatic to take it through the court system and they don't want to pursue it. Oh, that's depressing in itself. Okay, so let's say you get enough there to file a charge. Um, do you consult? with the parents, the rest of the family. I mean, the ramifications of going forward with a prosecution are huge, and they don't end at the courtroom door. Correct. So sometimes at the CAC, we might have an, a child who give a very good disclosure, and it's very clear that something has happened to that child. But that decision would not be made that day. That's the very beginning of the process sometimes. So from there, a police officer would take it and complete that investigation send it over to our office once it's complete um, and during that time the CAC is keeping in contact with that family once that report has made it to our office we also have victim advocates who would be consulting with the family about their wishes of course we might not go along with what they want but that is something that we do consider well clearly it's better to have everybody on board or moving in the same direction Correct. but I'm sure you've had situations where mom still loves the alleged molester we sadly have times where the victim still loves the offender and does not want to cooperate either. I, I do remember covering a trial years ago of a little girl who was molested by her own father who approached me in the hallway afterwards because the people had explained to her, as a reporter, I am allowed to remain in the courtroom for the, the testimony. Generally, the courtroom is cleared of everybody who does not have a legal uh, role or a, as a juror. And I remember her saying to me, do you think he'll still be able to walk me down the aisle? And I just, I was like, oh, the normally loquacious Mary Shank was right. stopped in her tracks. And I just said, gee, I, I don't know. It's not unusual. Oh, it was just. And that's, uh, part, that's part of the sad thing is that 90% of the time that a child is sexually abused, it's by someone they know, love, or trust. And so that's a hard thing, I think, for the community and for um, potential jurors to understand is 
if that person that sexually abused a child is their biological father or their stepfather who's raised them for the past 11 years, they're still going to show that connection and that emotion when they see them, especially if they've a safety plan has been in place and they haven't been able to see them for a certain amount of time. I mean, sometimes it takes a child or a trial a year and a half to two years to go. And if they haven't seen that person and they see them for the first time, there's going to be, they're going to have that emotion of, oh, it's my dad or oh, it's the guy that I know is my father. And that doesn't mean the abuse didn't happen. It doesn't demean, it doesn't mean that it didn't traumatize and hurt the child. That's just a natural reaction to seeing somebody that you love and you miss. Sure. Sure. Which, you know, kind of explains a whole lot of things. Uh, I've sat through my share of mistrials and, um, not guilty verdicts in these cases where as as a mom in the back mm -hmm. I'm going oh come on <laughs> but I'm jaded from having viewed too many of these as I'm sure the two of you are I you know we can't help but bring what what my friend Mike Schlosser calls our confirmational bias to the table right <laughs> um, so talk a little bit Lindsay about the preparation uh, let's assume you do have a case that's good enough that you think to give to a jury um, do you, again, try to minimize the amount of contact with the child? There's that fine line between a defense attorney. You know, yes. the question always comes up. How many times have you talked True. with Ms. Clark? So there is a fine line to walk. Um, of course, I'm another stranger being introduced into this equation that I am going to need the child to trust me and talk to me and know that I'm there to help them tell their story to the jury or to the court. I can't tell them what to say. And our number one rule when we meet with children is we just need you to tell the truth. Whatever that is, we just need the truth. But that's not the first conversation that you're going to have with the child. At first, we're going to gauge how old is the child? Are there any uh, disabilities or educational issues? And we really have a case-by-case -case approach with each child and how often should we meet or when do we tell them mm -hmm. who I am and that eventually we are going to talk about it. So often our first meeting is just with the, the parents a couple of times. We ask them how they think the child's going to react and then we'll bring the child in just a couple of times just to meet them. We might tour the courthouse, we might tour mm -hmm. the Abraham Lincoln uh, sites in, within the courthouse and not really tell them while they're there until they're comfortable with me. We might color, we might play games. Uh, eventually when we feel and maybe the counselors are telling us that they're they're doing okay and they're able to talk about it I'll broach the topic with them and tell them what I do it's not until meetings after that once I realize yes we're definitely heading towards a trial that we're gonna start taking them into the courtroom letting them see what it's like to sit in that witness stand maybe letting them know their mom or dad might be sitting at that defendants table and what it's gonna be like to see them for the first time but I don't want them to talk about that abuse over and over again. That's not until we know it's a trial. And I'm trying to remember parents, uh, the, the, the parent who is not on trial, again, I keep reverting to that because so often that's the case that it's a parent who's the alleged molester. They don't get to sit in there while their child is testifying. It's pretty much just the child looking at you right oftentimes the parent cannot be in there if they're a witness in the trial they might the other parent might be the one that testify the dates the child might have had uh, contact with the defendant or they might have been the outcry witness so if they're a witness in that case they cannot be in there and listen to their child testify which 
is hard. Uh, they can bring a comfort person in with them normally. So we have constant contact with the MDT, our multidisciplinary team. We might ask that a counselor or someone that they're comfortable with, it could be a grandparent, a teacher, and we'll ask the judge permission to have them come in when they testify and maybe sit right behind me or right next to me. And why do you suppose it takes months for these cases to go to trial? Because they don't get any better for the most part, do they? They don't get any better. In um, terms of, a, from a prosecutor's point of view? Well, you'll find, uh, once you're familiar with the criminal justice system, our system is highly uh, there to protect the, def the defendant. So they hire an attorney, and they need time to read all of the reports and do their own investigation. And, and some of these people are looking at never seeing the light of day again. So it's very serious for the defense to prepare and to know what they're facing and file motions. And we have motions that we want to file as well. And sometimes it just takes that long to get through all of them. Um, and one of those, I like, explain what a 11510 motion sure. is. To, so, so you don't just pull a kid off the right. street and plop them down on the witness stand. No, the the CAC is set up to record the interview of that child. And if that child is under 13 years of age, there's a certain statutory uh, exception to the hearsay rule that would allow us to play their recorded interview for the jury. Um, this can be crucial for a very small child. You don't know how they're going to react when they walk into that courtroom. Mm -hmm. Um, they get nervous. They might see the perpetrator. They might not speak a whole lot. So that video can serve as their story as, or their statement that is going to be played for the jury. It can't take the place of their testimony, but it serves to assist them in testifying. Okay, but the judge has to know in advance. Yes, that that's that a whole hearing all by itself. We have to show that the statement taken um, is reliable. So we have to have everyone come in and testify from the initial outcry to every person who might have spoken to that child so that we can assure the court no one has put words in that child's mouth and that we did everything to assure that this statement was reliable. Right. Carrie, get back to talking about um, the CAC interview itself. You try to just get it all done in one fell swoop, right? We do, and that's the goal. Um as far as a legal standpoint and for the child so that they, they don't have to come back and keep going through this. That's the ultimate goal of all CACs is to minimize the, the number of times the child has to go through this. Um, again, the, our forensic interviewers are certified. They're required to do ongoing training and they perform you know, anywhere from six to 12 forensic interviews a week. So they are very good at their job. They know how to ask the questions that need to be asked and they work so closely with the other members of the team, they know what's needed. You know, what, what is the doctor going to need? What is Lindsay going to need? What is somebody mm -hmm. going to need for this investigation to continue? Well, I've sat through my share of watching those as well. Why is it you think juries don't believe children? I think the whole process, part of the problem is it is a process. A lot of the times the abuse has happened over weeks, months, or years. Um, and sexual perpetrators are very good at what they do. They are calculated. They are manipulated. You know, as we saw in the Larry Nassar case, this takes, the process happens over such a long period of time. It starts with them touching their leg or caressing their face. And the perpetrators do these things in front of the parents so that they can gain the trust of the parents. They're gaining the trust of the child 
so that they can say, look, this was allowed. Do you remember when I touched your face and your mom was in the room? And then they progressively go further and further. And I think a lot of, a lot of times people want that physical evidence. They want there to be some kind of trauma to the child's body. Physical abuse is very different. We have that physical evidence. But for child sex abuse, because it starts with the touch, and because it's not usually, and I'm going to get graphic, but it's not usually the penis being inserted, inserted fully into the vagina that would leave that hard physical evidence. These kids are small. The perpetrators right. know how to just start with minimal penetration or having the child um, do other things to them that mm -hmm. won't leave any evidence at all. Yeah, I mean, as adults, we can figure out <laughs> certain touches aren't going to hurt. Uh, the ones that always gets me is when the, the child will say, it hurt. Well, a child isn't going to know that right. uh, yeah, at a certain age, or a child isn't going to know what physically uh, men go through when, they, right. when they're climaxing, unless they've seen it with their own eyes. Right. And, um, well, and yeah. I think the other thing to know is, too, is children don't make these things up. The amount of trauma that they have to go through from disclosing to their parent, just talking to the CAC, going through court, having their loved one ripped out of their life. This is all so traumatic for the child. They don't choose to bring this kind of hardship onto themselves or their family. And a lot of times when they do come forward, because the abuse happens over years, they may feel, it, it could be because they feel safe. Maybe the perpetrator no longer has access to them. Mm -hmm or they've got a younger sister who is um, going through puberty and they think I, there's no way I can allow this to happen to her too. Lindsay, can you talk about the statute of limitations on, uh, I, I don't mean to catch you off right. guard because there might be different ones, but you know, the legislature has worked to, uh, what expand do I want to say? Expand yes. the window of opportunity for prosecutions. Right. So. Right now, we're in a good place. There's still improvement that could be made. Mm -hmm. um, but if someone were unfortunately abuses a child today, there's no statute of limitations for that. But we are still receiving reports. We reviewed one yesterday that happened in the 70s. Oh, we're still reviewing reports of people just now willing to come forward. And those are the cases that we no longer can prosecute. Starting in the, the 80s, the statute of limitations started to be a lot uh, more expansive. But, you know, several decades ago, it was three years, just like everything else. Three years from the date of occurrence, we had to prosecute them or start the prosecution in that time. And so there are some a year we still have to turn away and say we cannot prosecute this because it's outside the statute of limitations. I hope that we don't have that problem going forward. And when I made the comment of these cases don't get any better memories fade they do don't, don't they they do um, sometimes though the the length of time that you're seeing in these cases get to trial um, is preparing that victim to be mentally able to go through this process I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be interviewed at the CAC but we do try to make that as friendly and as simple and non-confrontational as possible but that is not what's going to be like in the courtroom it's going to be tough and they're going to be in a room full of strangers and being cross-examined by a defense attorney whose sole purpose is to not have his client be found guilty. And at the risk of quoting myself, these kinds of cases cut across class, race, socioeconomic. I mean, 
I've seen really dumb people in the courtroom. I've seen really educated people in the courtroom. I mean, it's yet the people that you will typically find on a jury are not going to have a background in this. We're trying to find impartial juries, so the people we're asking to decide the guilt aren't going to know what we know. They are going to expect, I think, typical responses, and there is no such thing as a typical response or a typical time to disclose or a typical reason to disclose. We find new reasons every week, and it makes complete sense once the child tells that story. Um, but I don't know that these 12 people were asked that are being asked to decide the verdict um, realize that everything this victim telling you, that, that's their story. That's how it happened. And we can't expect them to do anything else other than tell us what happened. That's always my favorite line in your closing argument is when you say, don't check your common sense at the right. door, people. You know, yes, we ask you to follow this set of rules in evaluating this evidence. But, but the jury instructions also say to judge it in light of your own experiences in life. That's where the common sense part mm -hmm. comes in. And I was thinking, too, along the lines of the victims cutting across socioeconomic right. states. This isn't just, you know, poor minority Everyone. children. Right. Uh, we've right. seen all ages and, <laughs> right. like I said, levels of education. Um, I want Carrie or, or Lindsay talk about, okay, if God forbid your child comes to you today and says, hey, my scout leader or my teacher, you know, somebody touched me wrong. How is the adult hearing this for the first time? How should they react? What should they do so that you don't screw this up for right. the future? So don't, I mean, we don't want people to panic. The first thing we want you to say to your child is, I believe you. I am so sorry that this happened to you, and I'm going to do whatever I can to protect you and make sure this doesn't happen again. And the same thing, you know, that's the same thing we want people to say to us as an, an adult. If I was raped on the street, I would want someone to believe me and say the same things to me. Children need that same reassurance. And then step two is what? Call, call the somebody, police? Call the police. Call DCFS. Don't take matters into your own hands as much as you would like to. Um, and let somebody else that's trained do the investigation. Okay. And naturally speaking, as a parent, you might want to sit there and talk to them for two hours about when and where and how. That's not going to help you as a parent or a teacher or a coach, whoever you are. Um, we'll get those answers in the right way. And it's going to be hard not to confront the perpetrator and want to have answers there. But there's a process for that. Which leads back to my initial thing. We are so fortunate to have a CAC with these professional interviewers whose job it is to draw this information out, right? Right, and then it's not just that. We also provide case management case management services for the child. Oh, I'm glad you brought that and up. And their family. So we have that family advocate who does an amazing job of working with the family through, through whatever amount of time they choose to engage. So all the way through the court process. And then the, the other thing is if they come back five years later, something's happening in their life and they want more services, they can come back and get more. That was going to be my question. Do you just refer to other experts in the community? Clearly the trial is the major, uh, what do I want to say, stumbling block. You're climbing up that mountain, you get past the trial, and then it's like, uh-oh, you know, dad ain't here anymore. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, we do because sometimes it, it causes them anything from homelessness um, to other legal involvement. 
So we refer to whatever whatever they would need, we can help refer them to. We also contract with four counselors who provide as much counseling as the victim would need, and then the non-offending family member who's supporting the child. We offer those services to them as well. I should ask, and forgive me if I asked this, several months back when you were my guest, how is the CAC funded? So we are funded by four grants, both federal and state, and then community donations. Okay. Um, anything else you two wanted to get into that I haven't thought to ask? It's, it's a broad topic, but I, I keep thinking of, you know, how um, resilient your interviewers and all of you have to be to deal with peop- these children at an age-appropriate level. You know, a six-year-old's going to have a different idea of how things work than a 12-year-old or a 15-year-old. That's true. I, I think even in adults in this field, we have training, we mm-hmm. have the education, we year after year go and we learn more about how children disclose when and why they disclose, why people perpetrate. Um, but I think the community as a whole would benefit from research. If you're an adult who has kids, if you are uh, an adult who doesn't have kids or who works with kids, the chances are pretty good that a child might choose you as the person they trust to disclose. So we're counting on those people to do the right thing, and so many do not. They don't because it is their significant other or their family member, and they think it should be kept in the family, or maybe they just don't know what to do. Um, but the community really should be prepared uh, and dealing with this and getting the information to the authorities and do research about this. I feel like we are pretty well trained, um, but something happens ev- with every CAC that is <laughs> new that we, th- we thought we'd seen it all, but, but oh, we haven't. I, I've said that for years. Right. This is the best continuing education anyone could possibly have. And I'll ask you the same thing people ask me all the time. How do you disconnect from this? I mean, you have families. You have, Lindsay, I know you have children. You, you know, is it easy to turn this off at five when you leave the office? I don't ever turn it off. No. Yeah. Um, is there such a thing as job satisfaction in your line of work? You know, we have had cases where the perpetrator was convicted, and that's a small percentage of satisfaction that that child got a little bit of indication that they were believed, but you go back to your office and there's three more waiting or there's those juries that won't make that decision or can't make that decision and gives that message to the child that they didn't believe them so that's it's a constant battle every day we're getting the cases every day yeah these are not easy for juries i think just even if the the jury doesn't go the way we would like them to go seeing actually your articles in the paper that their face is out there just because this jury didn't convict the alleged perpetrator doesn't mean it didn't happen but that people know people start talking about it so that kids can feel more comfortable to come forward and talk about it I mean I was very nervous just to come in here and talk to you today I can't imagine what it feels like for a child to have to get on the stand in court and then say words like penis or vagina Mm -hmm. and you know how far did the finger go in or something like that that's a horrible thing to have to talk about, period, and then to have to do it in front of so many strangers. And have those strangers judging you about right. whether or not right. they and, believe And try you. to discredit what you said. 
Well, and I take no joy in writing those um, because none of us can help but wonder, what if this is a false accusation? I mean, you've ruined somebody's life merely by pinning them with that. I would love to jump in and say that the rate at which children make false accusations is less in sex abuse is less than 5%. And honestly, our process is set up in a way to make sure we are getting reliable statements. No one's going to say, you know, this child said, you know, so-and-so did this to me, so we take them right into court and try to convict someone. That's why the CAC is here, to have them tell their statement in their own words, and that's part of what we're doing when we watch it. Uh, You know, they're upset. They're crying. If a child sits there and shakes and doesn't want to tell you for a little bit, something probably happened to that child. But later in court that's going to be viewed completely different by 12 people who've never experienced this saying the child couldn't even say the words or today they're saying this but on that day they didn't want to speak about it so I think it's a it's a horrific situation to put a a child through but there are processes set up to make sure that it's reliable. Um, One last question are there any events going on in April are we just trying to be raise mindfulness about please treat children right (laughs) there's a committee that's working together um we're working with the crisis nursery and casa so you'll see the children's advocacy center blue kids around town oh yes so we'll have those placed throughout the community um you'll see the pinwheels from casa those will be in some of the park district uh, flower beds but we're trying to commit come up with an event for all of us to do something together so we'll do some news events we'll do some press releases just to get information out there. Well, I'm happy to have you here, uh, Carrie May, Director of the Children's Advocacy Center, and Lindsay Clark, a longtime prosecutor in the state's attorney's office. Thank you for the good and important work you do for our community and for being my guests on Legally Speaking. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for letting us talk about it.